given that so much of economic growth is driven by demand, it just stands to reason that you would want to have an economy where people uh, have jobs, have income, because they spend that income and that's what helps our economy grow. Welcome to the Black Agenda Podcast. I'm your co-host, Adrian Guest, along with my co-host, Devin Dito. Um, we're after the pandemic. You know, I don't know how long I guess we've kind of been out of. I guess we're still not really out of it. And we've been talking about all the lives and all the healthcare needs that we've had. But what we really want to focus on is what the labor market has really done as a response to the pandemic. Um, we know that a lot of weaknesses were exposed due to the pandemic, and our labor market is one of those weaknesses. And we're joined today, listeners, by an expert, uh, Dr. Valerie Wilson, who will be uh, with us today to talk to us. Uh, just to give you some insight, uh, Dr. Wilson, she's the director of the Economic Policy Institute's Program on Race, Ethnicity, and the Economy. Prior to joining EPI, Dr. Wilson was an economist and vice president of research at the National Urban League's Washington Bureau. Dr. Wilson has written extensively on various issues impacting economic inequality in the United States and has also appeared in print, television, and radio media. Lastly, Dr. Wilson has her PhD in economics from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Uh, so, Dr. Wilson, uh, really, really great credentials there, and we really appreciate you being with us today. Thank you for having me. It's my pleasure. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So just to kind of start us off, our first segment, uh, Dr. Wilson, we're, we're, we're theming at the year of the worker. We're, we're kind of focusing on what, you know, the worker has gained as a result of this shock in the labor market. Um, we've seen a lot of major companies really listen to the demands of workers, like, you know, continuing remote work. Uh, even some countries have really shifted to four-day work weeks. And I know some American companies are starting to do that. And even companies are starting to pay a lot of tuition dollars to attract and retain employees. So, Dr. Wilson, just to kind of start us off in talking about the year of the worker, kind of explain to our listeners what we're really experiencing here in the labor market. And is this something that we can expect to be sustainable? So I think, you know, what we're seeing in the labor market is definitely the result of a shock. You know, when the pandemic hit uh, early last year, or guess was it even the year before, early last year, you know, you lose track of time. <laughs> um, the immediate effect was for nearly everything to shut down. So we saw huge one month uh, job losses that, you know, really were unprecedented that we hadn't seen uh, before. Uh, as things have recovered, as, as offices and schools have reopened, We've started to see some of those jobs come back. But I think as a result of that comeback, uh, we're starting to see some things uh, changing in terms of how people engage with work. The way that we described the labor market impact of the pandemic early on was that it basically uh, divided the labor force into three groups. The first group were uh, all of the folks who lost jobs completely. Uh, that second group of workers uh, were those who maintained their jobs, but because they were identified as essential workers, they had to report to work in person. And so they were trying to balance economic security and health security. And then there was a third group of workers that could work remotely. And so they didn't have any risk really to their economic security or their health. Uh, in terms of how that fell out in the demographics of the workforce, Black, Latinx, Native American, low-wage workers were least likely to be in that third group uh, that could protect both their economic interests and their health. And so as we see things recovering uh, and you know, some workplaces where there was an opportunity for people to work remotely are being more flexible. They're recognizing that people could remain productive uh, in, in working remotely. But there are still a lot of jobs that require people to physically come into the office and to you know physically come to work and be present there. I think that's where we're starting to see some of the incentives because they're recognizing uh, that there is a cost <laughs> to people doing that, that people had concerns about uh, being in a, in a physical workplace. I'm seeing a lot of the stories about 
people in the service industry facing physical threats and violence just because they're trying to enforce a lot of the safety uh, standards. And so I think employers have recognized that to some extent they have to offer some additional incentives, additional protections even for those workers that do physically have to report to the workplace. Yeah, I mean, that's that kind of describes the, the interesting place where we are in the labor market. Like you say, it was a shock, essentially everything shut, you know, shut down. And I was lucky enough to be in that third group of people who were able to work remotely and still, you know, keep my job mostly through the pandemic. I did eventually get laid off, but it was later. Um, but I mean, now kind of fast forwarding, you know, I guess you could say a year and a half now since the pandemic has started, we're in the recovery part of it. Uh, we are adding jobs now, but the weird thing that we're kind of seeing right now is we have nearly 11 million job openings and we still have about eight, you know, a little bit over 8 million people who are unemployed. But the problem is we're just, there are still a lot of people who lost their jobs at the beginning of the pandemic who don't seem to be coming back. And that's the thing that is kind of confusing a lot of people. We're, we're blaming, you know, the unemployment benefits, stimulus checks, uh, some, you know, even maybe the child tax uh, credit payments. Uh, so just kind of talk about maybe what do you think is driving? And, and they're calling this trend of people not not just coming back, but also some people are just quitting their jobs altogether and leaving, you know, their, their industries or just leaving work altogether. So just kind of talk about this new trend in resignations and, you know, just what's driving that. People have to understand that, again, this recession was unique. (laughs) You know, usually there are some underlying weaknesses in the economy that sort of trigger a recession. This time it wasn't. It was completely driven by the pandemic. That being the case, there are other circumstances and conditions that people are weighing in terms of returning to work. For some people, um, it's a challenge to do that, given that, you know, we are still in the pandemic. Some people still have health concerns about returning to work. People still have uh, issues with care responsibilities, whether that be caring for children or caring uh, for aging parents that prohibit them from being able to return to work. And I'm sure there are others who in that time, either being out of work or even working remotely, you know, did some sort of self Uh, evaluation, some soul searching, and decided that there was another way that they could uh, take care of their uh, financial needs other than reporting uh, to a nine to five job. I think that's probably a luxury (laughs) to be in that position and just say, oh, I'm not going to go that job. I'm going to figure out something else to do. Uh, And so I tend to think that for those who have, for most of those who have not yet returned, they're just simply other barriers that make that more challenging. Uh, I tend to think that uh, a lot of the uh, economic uh, support that came out of the government, the extended unemployment insurance, uh, the stimulus payments or economic impact payments, I think is what they're calling them, are not the cause of of keeping uh, people from returning to work. Um, Those are temporary. You know, we've already reached Uh, sort of the end of the line with that. So I don't think anyone is passing up full-time employment for something that's going to end at some point. But the other side of that is that those benefits are important to, one, helping people to be able to support themselves to continue to meet their material needs uh, during the pandemic, but also giving them an opportunity to really search and make a good choice about where they're going to return to work. So I think all of those things are important for uh, shifting the balance of, of power in the labor market. And I think that's one of the things that I hope is a sustaining and continuing uh, feature and trend coming out of the recovery that people have recognized that they do uh, have some power, at least in the situation where we are in now, to you know sort of set some standards for what they think is fair and what's adequate, what they need, uh, and that you know, in the current moment, that that power is largely uh, on the side of of employees. Whereas historically, at least over the forty last forty or fifty years, employers have had more of the bargaining power in that relationship. And that's a, and that's a good point. And just you know, one quick follow up to that is just talking about 
how people are approaching work, being more, you know, decisive as far as like what kind of job they're going to take when they do come back into the labor market. And, you know, I was just wondering too, do you think that this is a moment where as a country, a lot of people are starting to re kind of rethink the whole notion of the, you know, working to live versus living to work idea. You know, a lot of people have pushed that we should be, you know, you should be productive and, and go to work and, and do your nine to five, stay there for 20, 30 years, retire. Do you think we're kind of rethinking that to where the work-life balance matters a lot more now than it did, say, before the pandemic? I think that's probably the case. Um, you know, there's nothing like a pandemic to sort of shock you into the realization of just how short life can be. Um, you know, a lot of people lost loved ones, uh, were sick themselves. Um, and when, you know, you come to the realization of, you know, what you may spend hours of your day doing and really what you get from that compared to things that you can't replace, that you can't buy. Uh, with money. And I think that that triggers some thinking and some serious introspection about what it is we value. And, you know, in this country, I think we've placed far too much emphasis uh, on uh, financial things, on, on economics, because it's a necessity. I mean, we need money. We're in a capitalist society. Yeah. It takes money to survive <laughs> here. But just in terms of our values, you know, things that are important, uh, things that you know we recognize are irreplaceable. Uh, I, I think that, and I hope that's one of the positive things that lasts through this. Another thing that that sort of uh, triggered more discussion about is the availability of paid leave. How important it is that you know when you experience a pandemic that people need to have paid sick leave. And I hope that really you know spills over into all kinds of leave, not just for people being sick, but, you know, paid parental leave. Uh, I hope that's the thing that comes out of this. Affordable childcare, um, care workers, teachers being adequately paid. I, you know, I, I, that's something that I think has also uh, garnered more attention when we think about the tremendous job that teachers, nurses, uh, all the support staff that are in our schools uh, and our healthcare system, all that they gave to make life you know, much uh, easier for the rest of us. I, I hope that there is a, a reordering uh, of those values. And by the way, uh, the majority of, of people who, who work in those kinds of occupations tend to be women of color. Uh, so even more, I think that it's important that we appropriately value those kinds of jobs and, and the service that they provide to this nation. You know, uh, Dr. Wilson, uh, if the government was ever wondering what they needed to focus on, uh, the pandemic clearly exposed so many <laughs> different things for them to do. Uh, and we've got a lot of work. Um, fortunately, President Biden is working on it, but a lot of it's got to be on the private sector to make some adjustments and adapt as well. And listeners, we're going to take our first break. And when we come back, we're going to get into it and talk about that private sector and talk about the employer's reaction to change. So listeners, stick with us. We'll be right back. absolutely appreciate your support. You are the foundation and our efforts work to better your communities. Tell your family and friends so we can all work to bring progress. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Black Agenda Pod. That's at Black Agenda Pod. Let's get back to the show. All right, listeners, welcome back. Let's get into our second segment here. Remember, we're joined today by Dr. Valerie Wilson. She's a director of the Economic Policy Institute's program on race, ethnicity, and the economy. Uh, Dr. Wilson, we're you know theming the second segment you know about the employers and kind of looking at their reaction. As we kind of talked about in the introduction, uh, we know that the you know the pandemic exposed a lot here, and a lot of people lost their jobs, and a lot of jobs are really just not even coming back. Um, we saw throughout this, though, that a lot of workers just weren't really treated proper. 
Um, they didn't get the proper PPE or even safety standards that they needed. And that was really tough because you would think during the pandemic, employers would have been really focused. But now after the pandemic, it seems like we've got to get something that's going to stabilize our workforce. But Dr. Wilson, our first question is here is how do we get employers to really be more people centric when their shareholders and stakeholders care more about profits um, and not really looking out for the employees? Yeah, that is an, an unfortunate part of, you know, again, uh, being a, a capitalist society and having uh, conditions and really a, a policy environment where the balance of power was more in favor of employers, that they did have uh, more leeway to um, limit benefits, to limit, you know, what they were going to offer their uh, employees. I think one of the things that we're seeing now, at least in in this moment, as we're in the the process of recovery, is that it is requiring that employers do more to uh, attract and retain workers uh, in the current environment. Um, One thing being, you know, making sure that the workplace is safe, that people feel comfortable uh, returning to work. there's been all kinds of different offers of, of um, signing bonuses. Uh, we saw some during the pandemic that some workers received hazard pay. You know, mm-hmm. They were in a, a position that, that put them at risk. And so uh, I, I don't know how confident I feel that <laughs> that, that is going to last you know, long term. I hope it does. Uh, but at least for the time being, uh, there is a need for employers to offer more to workers, uh, at least to you know, sort of encourage more people to, to come back to work and to return to the workplace so that they can continue to earn those profits that they then give to their <laughs> shareholders. You know, that, that, always, that to me always seemed to be a missing piece of the puzzle. Like you're able to be profitable because of the people who work for you. There's no <laughs> one person. The CEO doesn't generate all of that money in a, a, a corporation. It's all the people that, that work there. And so by all means, uh, the workers should be sharing in those profits and the economic value that they help to generate. No, I'm glad you said that. And since you're talking about employers sharing more and giving more, um, you know, I feel like we, as an economist, we had to hit you with this one here. Uh, everyone's always talking about the minimum wage. And just to let you know, my my undergrad is in economics. So I, I, I know a little bit about this kind of stuff, not as much as you, but a little bit here. And when people talk about this minimum wage, you know, obviously you've got opponents who say that, you know, it's not doable for every business. You got, you know, people who are in favor of it saying that we got to provide these living wages for people. But, you know, how how do you see this, you know, Dr. Wilson, in this context of, you know, trying to actually have a living wage coming out of this pandemic? Um, You know, should our focus, you know, really be on the, the minimum wage or should it be more about maybe getting people trained to have more career salary positions. I'm not sure how you think about it. Um, so I think that raising the minimum wage is important. Uh, and because so many people in our economy work in jobs uh, that are subject to the minimum wage. And just by virtue of the fact that they are in a job that we have decided is going to be the lowest paying or among the lowest paying jobs in our economy does not mean that they shouldn't be able to earn a decent wage to be able to support themselves. Um, I don't think minimum wage has to be synonymous with poverty. Surely we understand that, you know, There are different uh, wages paid in the economy and the wage structure uh, generally is assumed to be uh, correlated with the uh, specific skills or or experience that one brings to the workplace. Their particular uh, level of productivity, you know, in theory, is supposed to inform what that pay is. But again, there's nothing that says that that level of pay has to be a poverty level wage. So I think a minimum wage is important in putting in a, a floor that says 
okay, we're not going to go beneath this level. This is just, you know, basic human decency of what people need. The fact that we have to wait for Congress to approve an increase in the minimum (laughs) wage puts us in a position where we are now, 2021, and the federal minimum wage is, is still well below, you know, what anyone would need for a decent standard of living. Um, so that's my sort of, you know, speech on the minimum wage. <laughs> on the other side of that, I think we we all understand that if you get additional education, if you get some additional skills training, you get some particular specialization, that that can uh, make you more attractive to employers. And as a result, you know, garner a, a higher wage. Um, I think people have put in tremendous effort to raise their wages by getting increased education. We've seen educational attainment increase. It's been steadily uh, increasing over the last several decades. And so even with that happening, we still see growing inequality. We still have a significant rate of poverty in this country, especially uh, among people of color. And so, you know, there's there's more to this than individuals just going and getting the skills and education that they need. We really need to raise our standards uh, so that all jobs, you know, provide people with a level of, of decency. Because, again, as we've seen in the pandemic, these jobs that we were calling essential were some of the lowest paid jobs. Yet people realize how important uh, and valuable they really were uh, to the functioning of the economy and to you know everyone's. Uh, comfort uh, and and safety during the pandemic. But yeah, so my my question just was about, you know, if like, if you were advising an employer right now in this particular labor market who may be struggling, trying to hire workers, and they're not sure if they really want to go all in to sweeten the benefits, raise their wages. Um, You know, where I work at currently is kind of that attitude. We're not going to offer much flexibility with remote working. Just like we're just going to kind of continue business as usual, just kind of advise employers why that approach is maybe not the best way, uh, you know, to approach this current labor market. You know, I think employers can discover for themselves whether or not that is a good way to approach the current (laughs) labor market. Are you able to uh, staff up uh, to meet demand? Uh, If not, then you need to do something else to sweeten the deal and uh, attract more workers or retain the workers that you currently have. It is a competitive environment uh, where you know employers are needing to attract and retain their workforce uh, in order to to meet demand. And so I think also that there are returns and benefits to the employer. Uh, we often frame this conversation in terms of what it's going to cost an employer uh, to to bring in employees. But the other side of that is that uh, employees that are better paid, who uh, have more flexibility, um, who uh, enjoy (laughs) their workplace, who are able to to meet uh, their needs, are more likely to stay on that job. And so you're going to have lower turnover, going to have more productive, more content uh, workers than uh, those who may you know feel like they're not being adequately paid or be disgruntled and you know be looking for another job or just sort of you know hanging in there until the next thing comes along. Uh, you know I think uh, offering attractive wages and benefits is a way of of not only attracting workers but keeping workers and keeping good workers. And I think that you know that part of it needs to be appreciated as well, that in the, the long term, you, uh, as an employer, reap benefits from that as well. Yeah, and that's a good point. You know, just that attitude of not only just trying to sweeten the pot to attract new talent, but retention mm-hmm. is key, especially when, when things get tight and the labor market gets kind of weird. You want to be able to retain your talent. And um, hopefully this is a long term trend of companies and employers starting to look and say, what do we offer? our current employees and what can we do to kind of keep them on um, and, and keep our retention down. So now I appreciate you, you know, answering that question. I know employers going to going to do what they, you know, what they think is best for the company, but you know, we always try to get a little tidbit in there. Just like, Hey, just look at it maybe from this perspective. But uh, so we're going to take a, a break and when we come back, we're going to get into kind of what we go after this, as far as the labor market is concerned. 
So we're going to take a quick break, quick break, listeners, and we'll be right back. Thank you for listening to the Black Agenda podcast. We appreciate your support and we ask that you like, share, and follow us on social media. You can find us on Facebook, IG, and Twitter at Black Agenda Pod. That's at Black Agenda Pod. Let's get back to the show. All right, listeners, welcome back. Let's get into our third segment. Remember, we have uh, Dr. Valerie Wilson, director of the EPI's program on race, ethnicity, and the economy. Uh, Dr. Wilson, the third segment is about the government because we think the government has a missing piece uh, you know, here and we got to play our part. Um, Devin brought up the statistic here about, you know, the U.S. Bureau of Labor reporting about, you know, 10.9 million jobs that are open right now. And when I think about that, Dr. Wilson, I think, you know, there's a solution to it. I mean, you know, we, we've got a lot of, you know, high school juniors and seniors, college students, and even a lot of people in rural towns like my hometown where they don't have a job, you know, and need a job. Um, it seems like there's a way to make sure that, you know, every student, every adult in America who wants a job can have one, but our government's just not thinking creative especially when a lot of these jobs we saw in the past two years can be 100% remote. So how do we get the government maybe to think more creatively or, you know, how how do we, are there any sort of ideas that maybe EPI or others are proposing to kind of help the government solve this problem? You know, I think we have to look at the statistics in the full context. So, you know, there, and I, I think what we're seeing now in terms of what seems to be a mismatch between the number of openings uh, and people's willingness to take those jobs, it's something that, you know, over a longer period of time will work itself out. Again, we're still working through a pandemic. The conditions that we're in aren't ideal or normal uh, by any means. And the fact is that we're still down about 5.3 million jobs compared to where we were in February. So the growth of, of the, of the of job growth that we've seen in this recovery, as strong as it has been over the last several months, at least until August when the Delta variant kind of threw things off track, is still well below where we were in February. Uh, and so the main priority, I think, of uh, the Biden administration currently is trying to you know, get their build that better plan in place that is actually mm-hmm. going to create more jobs. Uh, and I think that the focus of of that plan and the kinds of jobs that they're looking to create are jobs that will be uh, uh, good paying jobs. And they will also be jobs that will meet a lot of our needs currently in the society. Uh, climate change. Again, I think that's something else that has sort of Uh, come to the surface during the the pandemic, as we've seen a lot of the uh, natural uh, disasters that have happened across the world and not just in this country. But, you know, addressing climate change uh, and, and, you know, the way that that addressing that can help to uh, create jobs and create good paying jobs is something we've seen the needs, the the extreme needs uh, in terms of the care economy and people needing uh, access to care, uh, that's still being in demand. A lot of school districts are still not fully staffed, even though school is back in session. And so I think the main thing the government, the most important thing that the government can do is to you know, do the things that, that, that we need to do to meet our current needs and demands in, in terms of the economy, in terms of employment, in terms of uh, climate change. Uh, but also in thinking about, you know, as we continue to come out of the recovery, people still aren't in a quote unquote normal state. The kinds of, of um, interventions that they made uh, early on to help provide some economic support um, continue to be important, even as the unemployment rate uh, has fallen slightly. Uh, but the improvement in that rate isn't even, you know, we know that there is still a racial unemployment gap. Uh, women were hit harder than men in this recession. And so, you know, there, uh, again, there are a lot of things to balance. People still need support. 
at the same time, uh, people uh, still need access to jobs. We're still well below 5.3 million jobs below where we were in February. Right. And, and when you talk about, you know, government intervention, you know, you kind of touched on some of the things that we could be doing, um, attracting workers to certain industries like care and, and you know, education. We need more teachers. Um, but a lot of people have criticized the government for, you know, putting out so much, you know, stimulus with payments, um, you know, the enhanced unemployment benefits and now the advanced child tax credit payments. Um, but the interesting thing about the child tax credit payments is they're almost a form of uh, universal basic income. It's not quite what you would think of, but it's kind of like we're testing it out, essentially, to see if, you know, direct cash payments to Americans is really the, you know, going to be like this driver of inflation and, and bring on so many other issues that people painted as being. So just kind of what do you think will be the lasting effect? of the government um, interventions that we've seen and, and will any of this stick in the long term? Do you think, you know, the child tax credit payments will be eventually permanent? Do you think we'll see some of this stuff kind of stick around for more of a long-term thing? So currently, you know, a lot of those things are, or have expired or scheduled to expire. Mm -hmm. They are temporary measures, um, but it's also important to recognize that they were effective. Um, about a week ago, uh, the Census Bureau released their income and poverty statistics for 2020. And it was unequivocal that the extended unemployment insurance benefits, um, the child tax credits, the economic impact uh, payments had a significant impact on reducing poverty in 2020. Uh, compared to what it would have been without those. Those were the second, third, and fourth most effective interventions in terms of preventing poverty. Social security continues to be number one. It's been number one. It's our most effective anti-poverty program in this country. But behind that, you know, we had those economic impact payments, the extended unemployment insurance, and refundable tax credits. And so we've seen how effective those measures can be at reducing poverty. And for me, what that says is we are choosing to tolerate higher rates of poverty than we necessarily need to or have to. Um, and so I, for me, I think that makes a strong case for continuing some of these things. And in particular, you know, the child tax credits, because, you know, that has an impact um, uh, that is multiplied, you know, because those payments were based, you, you know, with a, were payments per child in a family. And so for some families, you know, that was a significant boost in income that not only was effective at keeping the family out of poverty, but also, you know, opened up uh, any number of other options and, and possibilities uh, for those families to make decisions that were good for the family and not just decisions that were driven by an economic need, even if it was not necessarily in the, the best uh, interest of the broader, more holistic well-being of the family or the children. So I'm, I'm hopeful that we have learned, I think, the at least the change in how they administer the child tax credits is something that should be considered uh, you know, as a continuation even if the, the increased amount, and I think they extended it to include uh, older children beyond uh, the age mm. where they, they previously were. Um, but just the fact that it provided money to people on a monthly basis when they have the bill to pay, as yes. opposed to waiting <laughs> one time a year once those bills have already added up and people are delinquent on things. You know, a lot of people have been talking about universal basic income. And, you know, again, you know, just to kind of get some some thoughts on that real quickly. Um, you know, how, how do you feel? How do you look at universal basic income? So I think that, you know, anytime that we're able to get income <laughs> to people, that it is a benefit, you know, that that is the difference often uh, in people's ability to uh, remain above the poverty rate and their ability to be able to make uh, good choices and decisions. 
about um, their lives, their families' lives. Um, but at the same time, I, I, I recognize the importance to the economy as well in having a vibrant labor force and labor market. And the benefits of that is not only to broader economic growth, but also uh, to people's individual productivity and, and their uh, desire and need to feel like they're contributing uh, something to society and, you know, in fact, are contributing um, to society. And so I think that, you know, there's a, a, a balance there. I think that there are definitely ways that we can ensure that families in particular get adequate income. And I say families, thinking about families with young children, I think most people would agree that we you know, don't want to see children impoverished and facing hunger and homelessness uh, and all of those things. Uh, and, and so, you know, universal basic income or some other form of, of, of getting income to people, the child tax credits have been used uh, to uh, sort of structure something like that in the current situation as they um, made those monthly payments as opposed to people having to wait until tax time uh, to get that money. But, you know, I think that sort of, of payment structure is important as well for, for putting a, a floor on things, especially in a situation like we found ourselves <laughs> in during the pandemic when people couldn't go to work. Um, but over the, the long term, I think having a, a vibrant, thriving labor market and jobs that pay people a decent uh, living wage is is really important. Yeah, I think that that makes a lot of sense. I mean, it, it when you think about it, like you said, we were able to, you know, get ourselves a little bit out of poverty because of all of these payments we were given Americans. But you've got a lot of people who said, you know, the government's doing too many handouts, government's doing too many handouts. And like you said, the, the research shows that when the government does things that are structured in an appropriate way, where it's targeted to people who actually need the money, it actually works. And like you said, the research proves that. So um, really, uh, thank you, Dr. Wilson, for pointing to that, because that's that especially Ben, both of us are from Mississippi. We get a lot of people who just say that minorities need to just pick themselves up by the bootstraps and go back to work and all that kind of stuff. So when you talk about the actual research from the U.S. Census Bureau, you know, it brings some context to it. So thank you for that. And I think it's important to to understand what is behind that sort of messaging. I mean, you've said it, um, you know, when people hear a program that's going to benefit, quote unquote, a disadvantaged population. There you have an image that comes to mind. That image is of a person and it's usually a person of color. And so, you know, that gets into you know the, the history of, of racism in this country uh, and the way that uh, people assign who is deserving of assistance and who isn't without really recognizing how many other ways we assist people who are wealthy. <laughs> we assist people who are no. disproportionately <laughs> white. We think that a lot of the credits that are available in uh, the tax system, mortgage uh, interest deduction is something that disproportionately benefits uh, higher income and white families. Uh, the, the way that there's favorable treatment of income that people uh, get from something other than work uh, is a way that we provide assistance or handouts <laughs> to a certain segment of the population. And so I, I think that there's a real disconnect in understanding all the ways that we already as a country give quote unquote welfare to corporations and other <laughs> people who are, are perhaps more well off but there's this real disdain for giving something to someone who's really in need. And it's always this argument about, oh, you have to work harder for it. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm through with that whole <laughs> thing. And it, but I really wish that there would be some more realization of, well, if we don't want to hand out money to people who are undeserving or don't need it, there are a lot of other things that we probably should cut out as well or instead. That's exactly right. <laughs> I mean, and, and not to continue this conversation, but you do bring up some very good points about how there are things in the system that are built to benefit those at the top, um, you know, in, in, in ways that we that's not necessarily obvious to just the average person. You're not going to read the tax code and see what tax breaks, you know, the rich can get. And I'll just say lastly, too, 
it's like we have the blueprints to fix a lot of the problems we have. We 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 figured out okay, if we give people direct cash payments, advance, you know, make the child tax credit refundable, pay some of that in advance, you know, over six months, we see the effects. It works. It should not be this hard for us to get things done when we have the data and research. You know, like we saw what the GI Bill did for, you know, the veterans that came home from war. We saw what that did. They got houses. They went on to be extremely successful and passed that down and built wealth. We've got the recipe for it. But we just like you say, there's an attitude of like, well, that benefited us. But now that we're up here, we want you to work 10 times as hard as we did to get there. Yeah. Um, and so it's just, you know, they don't want to share the resources. And it's just, you know, it's unfortunate, but it's something we'll keep fighting, you know, onward and onward. So, but uh, that's, yeah, that's going to do it for our last segment. So we have one more question for you, uh, Dr. Wilson, and then we'll get you out of here. So we're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. Would you like to contribute to our scholarship fund? Would you like to help us partner with nonprofits? Would you like to submit a topic request or maybe even appear on our show? If so, go to patron.podbean.com forward slash black agenda pod. Thank you for your donation and belief in our mission. Let's get back to the show. All right, listeners, welcome back. We are finally at our final message with Dr. Valerie Wilson. Remember, she's the director of the Economic Policy Institute's program on race, ethnicity, and the economy. Um, Dr. Wilson, I was listening to Senator Manchin talk about why he doesn't support the infrastructure bill. And what he was saying makes me think how government kind of feels right now. And he was basically saying, we've already allocated a lot of money. We just need to get it out there. People need to get a job. No further action is needed. So you got, you know, government on one side, you know, you got employers on one side who've got these 11 million jobs and trying to come up with all these different projects and incentives to get people coming back. And you've got us workers who have professed that we need these sorts of things like child tax credit and stimulus payments. We were able to pay our bills off and things like that. So I feel like every, you know, all three groups or rather all three parties are in their own faction and nobody's wanting to come together and figure this thing out. So I know it's not fair to you, Dr. Wilson, to throw this at you because <laughs> we know that Biden's got a bunch of economists probably working to figure this out. But, you know, if, if you could be in the room, you know, what's your theme that you think is going to bring these three parties, workers, employers and the government together so that we can have that vibrant labor market you were talking about? I think at least in terms of employers and workers, um, those are two clear pieces or parts of the same puzzle. Um, Employers need workers so that they can make (laughs) profits (laughs) and workers need jobs so they they can pay bills. (laughs) So I think, you know, coming to a a place where, you know, that we can have an agreement on the conditions uh, of of our employment, you know, it's, it's sort of what is being worked out now. I think it's important that, you know, we assume that that is an equal relationship when in fact it is not. There's much more power historically uh, on the side of employers. And it's time for workers to be able to come to the table and have uh, some other attractive, you know, at least equally attractive options to consider and to weigh uh, when you need to go back to work. Uh, The other part of this involves the fact that what powers our economy? The majority, I think about two thirds of GDP is from consumption spending. Uh, it's, It's aggregate demand. It's what individuals are going to spend. Uh, smaller portions of that come from uh, business investment and then the spending that the government makes and then, you know, our, our imports, our exports. But um, given that so much of economic growth is driven by demand, it just stands to reason that you would want to have an economy where people uh, have jobs, have income, because they spend that income, and that's what helps our economy grow. Um, Employers are going to hire to meet demand. 
and demand is driven by people having income that they can spend. Uh, I think a lot of the measures of, of, of the multiplier effect of different kinds of spending that we do, whether it be tax cuts or whether it be uh, direct payments, are clear that a lot of the uh, direct payments, cash assistance in particular, that goes to lower income households has a much uh, larger stimulative effect on our economy. So it really is in the best interest of households, of our government, our broader economy, and employers uh, that we have a, a vibrant labor market that people earn decent wages, that people have an opportunity to make good choices about not only their economic well-being, but also, as we've seen, their health, because that too uh, is an input in terms of people's productivity. So I, I, I'm hopeful that we can get there. I know that politics always throws things off, you know, it, it sort of gets us outside of the realm of, of, of rational thinking <laughs> and, and good economics. <laughs> but uh, I'm hopeful that, you know, we can at least make some for, forward progress on, on empowering workers and, and making households more economically secure. I love that message. I mean, hopefully, like you say, we're all hopeful. You know, me and Adrian are hoping that they can come together. We get this infrastructure bill passed. Joe Manchin gets on board magically and, and lets this thing get through because it's much needed. You know, I'm, I'm hoping we don't squander this opportunity. The pandemic, as, you know, as awful as it was for a lot of families and, and folks who lost people to this pandemic, it presented us with an opportunity to try some things that we hadn't been able to do before. And we've we've been able to try them with stimulus payments and child tax credit payments. And now we're saying, oh, look at that. These things actually work. So we need to be able to look at that and say, there are some things that we can change. It may not necessarily be a wholesale change of the labor market or our, our, or our economy, but there are some things I'm hoping that we don't squander the opportunity because of partisan politics and you know, Joe Manchin saying, ah, I don't want to spend any more money because we've done enough. Um, I hope we can get past that point um, because we've kicked the can down the road long enough. And if, at some point we're going to have to, you know, get it together and hopefully we can do that now rather than than later. So I just appreciate you bringing your perspective, um, you know, on the show and letting, letting us know, you know, what's really happened. Absolutely. And uh, I would like to say, I guess, you know, especially talking about economics, you know, <laughs> I, I I don't know what it was about economics that made me like it so much because people find it so dry. But, you know, talking about being a rational thinker, uh, economics really promotes that. Whenever I think about people who say, you know, policies are hard to come up with, we can't make both sides happy. I just think people aren't being rational. People are just being too political. Um, there is a way and, you know, lots of economists and people who are not economists have already proposed several ways that we can, you know, have a robust economy, whether it be in labor, climate, healthcare, whatever the case may be. Uh, like you said, Dr. Wilson, we got to remove politics out of it. So uh, listeners, if you got anything out of this, definitely, you know, remove the politics out of it, become more rational people, go study some economics. It's not, it's not as dry as you think. It's real fun. Uh, but uh, before we let Dr. Wilson go, let's uh, in, let's go ahead and read her quick little uh, tag here. Remember Dr. Valerie Wilson. She's the director of the Economic Policy Institute's program on race, ethnicity, and the economy. Uh, Dr. Wilson, we really, really appreciate you being with us today. Thank you, Adrian. Thank you, Devin. It was a pleasure. I enjoyed talking with you all. Absolutely. Uh, we look forward to having you back on, having the uh, Economic Policy Institute on again. Um, listeners, Devin and I, we're just going to take our last break. And when we come back, we're going to give you our ending. So stick with us. We'll be right back. You have been listening to the Black Agenda podcast hosted by Adrian Guest and Devin Dito. If you enjoy listening to the show, let the host know by leaving a review on Apple Podcast or by visiting patron.podbean.com forward slash Black Agenda Pod and give a few dollars. After all, the Black Agenda Podcast is supported by listeners like you. Let's get back to the show. All right, listeners, welcome back. Let's go ahead and do our ending here. We're going to give you a preview of some of our upcoming scheduled episodes. 
Remember that every Saturday we come back to you with the weekly roundup. And this Saturday, October the 2nd, we got weekly roundup number 16. Devin and I, we had a, uh, we come up with a really great format for you. We've been trying it out for the past couple of weekly roundups where we cover a lot of different topics from black centric stuff, some political, some cultural, funny stuff here and there. We would really love to get your comments on how you like the new format of our weekly roundup. So make sure you post those thoughts there to us. Also, we're going to be having our next regularly scheduled episode on Tuesday. It's going to be October the 5th. We're going to be doing our religion and social justice episode. Really, really interesting topic here about how those two things fit together, and if they should fit together. We're going to be joined today by Dr. Joel Hunter. He was President Barack Obama's former spiritual advisor, so a really, really uh, reputable person to kind of talk to us about this. So again, join us on October the 5th as we talk about religion and social justice. Remember that we take donations. <laughs> donations are really, really important, listeners. We like it when you listen to our episodes, but when you donate to us, that says not only do you like what we're doing, but you believe in what we're doing and you want to see it go further. So we'd really appreciate every dollar and cent that you can give us because we are trying to do something big with the Black Agenda. We really would like to have an organization here so that we can actually lobby these leaders. We can learn from experts and different things of that nature and really help to educate the community even in, in an even deeper way. So all you got to do is go to our website, blackagendapod.com, click that donate button. If you listen to us in the Podbean app, all you got to do is click that donate tab right there while you're listening right now. It's going to take you to levels where you can become a monthly patron. You also get gifts when you sign up. Gifts like shout outs, thank yous. You can give us topic suggestions. You can even appear on our show. So we'd love to have you on there. Again, go to blackagendapod.com and start giving. Remember that we always highlight a charity of the month. And for the month of September, we've been talking about 100 Black Men of America. Their mission is to improve the quality of life within our communities and enhance educational and economic opportunities for all African-Americans. They seek to be a beacon of leadership by utilizing their diverse talents to create environments where children are motivated to achieve and to empower people to become self-sufficient shareholders in the economic and social fabric of the communities that they serve. So really important mission right there. Remember, listeners, we're on all the majors, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, all you got to do is type in at Black Agenda Pod. That's our handle at Black Agenda Pod. When you go to Facebook, Instagram and Twitter, make sure you follow us. So that way, every time you uh, we post something, you'll be in the loop for it. make sure you share everything. So that way you can get our mission out there to your people and make sure you like it. So we know that you appreciate what we're doing. Lastly, Thank you, Dr. Valerie Wilson and the Economic Policy Institute for making Dr. Wilson available today. Uh, Dr. Wilson, your uh, insight into the labor market, really, really great. We appreciate you for being on the show. And to our listeners, we can't say thank you enough. You're the reason why we started the podcast, the reason why we continue to do this, and you'll be the reason why we'll be great. So appreciate it. Can't wait to catch you next time. So stick with us. Uh, we'll be back with weekly roundup number 16. So take care and catch you next time. Oh,